Shibata, Alyssa Keiko, and I discuss powerlifting in a leftist context. Also, the civil rights attorney Carl Williams and I talk about what district attorneys actually do. My name is Brandon Payton Carrillo, and I say let's get started. So today we're going to be talking about powerlifting. And in this segment, we have a regular contributor, uh, Kenzo Shivada and Alyssa Keiko. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Me I, too. Yeah, awesome. this is going to be great. This is like pumping iron lefty style. <laughs> but really, so... I don't know how one gets into powerlifting, so I'm just going to ask each of you, how did you get into powerlifting? So, Alyssa, how did you get into powerlifting? Um, well, I had just left a job working at a preschool where I was working with two-year-olds. Um, and if you have ever worked with ten two-year-olds at the same time, it is both stressful and boring somehow. <laughs> wow. I did so much stress eating, and I had gained a lot of weight. This was like my first year out from college, and I was just very uncomfortable, and I didn't want to have to buy new pants. So I was like, I, I got to lose weight, which, you know, this was five years ago, so my attitude is very different now. But at the time, I really just wanted my pants to fit again. Um and I hated running. I tried running before. Um, I did sports in high school, but um, running was like, everyone's like, you have to run to lose weight. Uh, and I do not know what rabbit hole I went down on the internet to find like all these tiny Asian women who were powerlifting. And <laughs> they were like, this is all I do, and I have abs. And I was like, wow. You mean I don't have to run? I'm going to have to try it. It can't be worse than running. And uh, so I started with starting strength, which is like a very popular beginner mm -hmm. program, um, which you just do like three sets of five. And there's like three, I forget if it's three different days of programming, but it's very simple to follow. And I started that and my workouts were only a half an hour and I only went three times a week and I loved it from the very beginning, and mm -hmm. also I accidentally lost like 15 pounds, basically just focusing on that and cutting out processed sugar, mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of like, I was like, oh, this is good for me, this is good for me mentally, this is good for me physically, uh, and I don't have to buy new pants, <laughs> so for me that was really like the beginning of what's kind of been an up and down 
uh, consistency with powerlifting. I wish I was more consistent, but there's always something to mm-hmm. do. You know? But yeah, it's my favorite. It's the only thing I've ever really stuck with on my own outside of being like part of a team sport. Wow, cool. Kinzo, your story? Yeah, Alyssa and I actually have very similar origin stories. And like when I talk to a lot of power lifters, kind of especially people who started in the past few years like us, like it very similar beginnings. Like for me it was I didn't have ten two year olds, but I had one at home. Uh, <laughs> and I you know, I have a, I have a son and, and it just dawned on me like I have to enjoy exercise of some sort. I have to like be healthy and live. Like I can't afford not to live a long life now. Um, so I tried a bunch of different things. I kind of looked into CrossFit and it looked like um, an injury waiting to happen. <laughs> um, like I know some people who got involved in CrossFit and like they've had a lot of success with it, but it just, it was too, it was too cardio intensive too. And I hate that. <laughs> um, even though I also, I ran in the past just thinking like that was the healthiest thing you can do. Um, and I even did like five K's and whatnot, but I just knew I didn't want to go back into that lifestyle. Um, so I was like searching around for different stuff and I found some bodybuilding programs online and I just started lifting weights and, um, you know, eating more sensibly, just, uh, you know, less processed food, um, or whole food, things like that, not nothing too heavy duty. And then, um, I had gotten healthier. My doctor was really happy looking at my, you know, all my counts and everything. Um, my weight was, you know, I mean, BMI, that's how, that was my education, how BMI is, is just garbage. Um, (laughs) because like, you know, according to even my doctor said like, according to BMI, you're obese, but your counts are perfect. Um, I wouldn't change anything about what you're doing. Uh, so I, I got into that, uh, the bodybuilding, not, not with any kind of intention of like doing bodybuilding shows or anything like that. Cause I knew I, I never wanted my life to be about getting that lean mm-hmm. like those people. Um, but then another internet rabbit hole, I was just looking at different forms of lifting and different styles. And, um, I came across some powerlifting videos and, you know, what I found immediately was that, you know, if you want to do a lift correctly, you should really watch a powerlifter do them and not necessarily a bodybuilder. Because the powerlifters are just so focused, like hyper-focused on form. Um, and from there, I started starting strength. Also, um, I did it through an app, which made it really easy. And I was just going to a um, a, uh, a chain uh, commercial gym, and but doing my own programming there and bringing all my powerlifting gear with me and getting weird looks from people. Because, um, you know, powerlifters, we have toys. You know, we can come to the gym with belts and ropes and... Um, wristbands and uh, special heeled shoes and it's, you know, it's, it's not cheap, but um, so I did that for a while. And then I got um, a friend of mine started working out at this small private facility by him uh, that was owned by powerlifters. And um, I immediately, I walked in there and it was just like it, you know, heavy metal was just blaring. Um, they were playing uh, to be more specific. They were playing like death metal Nice. Um, everyone was tatted up and, um, there were just chains there and people were just like lifting and screaming. And it was like one of those instances where it's like, okay, this is kind of scary, but at the same time, like if you don't do something that scares you, you can't grow. So I decided I was just going to like join the gym. They, they hooked me up with a, a, a 
trainer or a coach um, who, after a while, she convinced me to do meets. And I've done three meets so far um, and haven't looked back since. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, one of the things that I've been fascinated when it comes to powerlifting, besides all the, you know, different squats and techniques and lifting some heavy-ass shit, is that there seems to be a sense of community. How has that been for you guys? Uh, well, I mean, for me, uh, I found a coach in, you know, maybe 18 months after I first touched a barbell, and she coached a lot of women, and there was a really good in-person community. They, most of them did strong women meets. I never did strong man or strong woman competitions because a lot of that is like overhead work that my shoulder can't handle. It's very, um, uh, it's very temperamental with overhead work. So, uh, I always skipped that, but I went, I would go Saturday morning while they were practicing, um, just to be part of this. And they would practice at 8am on a Saturday morning. And I would go just to be in the same space as these like very strong, supportive women mm-hmm. who were all different, you know, sizes, shapes, weights, experience levels, and just a really supportive and incredible community that, uh, you know, there's maybe is, uh, it. There's like a, I don't know, women being competitive. And these these women were definitely competitive with themselves. And when they competed, they wanted to be, they wanted to win, but they also wanted to be there, give their best performance. And it was just a very good community feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I was, I'm just really... I consider myself to be very fortunate to have found uh, the the gym where I train, uh, Rockwell Barbell, because it's, um, well, it's, you know, our our our, our bathrooms are gender neutral. Like, they have uh, LGBTQ clinics. Like, my coach is gay, uh, and he's a co-owner of the gym. Um, You know, people of all races, um, sizes, shapes, like, it's such an accepting community. The only thing that anyone expects out of you is that you give a hundred percent of whatever you can give and they will keep you accountable for that. Uh, you know, you don't hear at my gym is people, you know, making fun of people for, for gaining weight or anything like that. You don't hear people, um, you know, making fun of people's clothing, you know, which is something that, you know, you'd, I saw pretty regularly at the commercial gym. Um, you know, people go there and they, they, they're themselves. Like it's, you know, sometimes it's, I feel like we're like the land of the, uh, the misfit lifters, like we're, um, all kind of doing our own things. Um, you know, there's quite a few socialists that I know, uh, who lift at that gym. Um, and, uh, it's, it, it is a bit of a contrast. It's, it's a big contrast to a lot of the stuff that I found on YouTube, uh, when I was, you know, first looking for different places and which was kind of intimidating to be honest. In, in looking for a powerlifting gym is, you know, you, you get a lot of, the, you do still get some of the bro uh, mentality, hmm. um, which, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't make it very motivating. You know, when you go to the gym and people care about anything other than 
other than the lifting. Um, you know, you, you watch some of these uh, YouTube videos about powerlifters and bodybuilders, and there's a little overlap with the alt-right. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely in the comments, like, no no doubt there, but, um, you know, even you'll hear, hear someone talking about, like, their day and how they lift, and then they'll sneak in a little Jordan peterson kind of be a man line there, and um, it's it's really disappointing. So, you know, I do feel like I have a very safe place to, to, to lift, and um, I really embrace that. So, man, that's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, but first of all, this is one thing that I always um, kind of admired about power lifters is it doesn't really matter how much you weigh as much as you can lift some heavy shit. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, how does that play within your psyche, your self-esteem, all that kind of stuff? Well, for me, one of the big things was it really uh, it, it helped me divorce my mind from like what my body looks like and my fitness level or my you know strength and what my body can do. I heard this, uh, a friend of mine said this great line, which was, um, you know, exercise isn't punishment for what you ate. It's a celebration of what your body can do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like powerlifting really put my head in that space now where like, you know, I might have a few weeks where I overeat, um, from stress or from whatever. Um, and I put on some weight and I could still go to the gym and, you know, when, my, if my lifts are going up, then, um, I'm happy you know, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I, I don't feel ashamed of myself going to the gym like that because I know that people are just going to support me in my pursuit for strength. Yeah, for me, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on everyone, of course, but there's a lot of pressure, especially on uh, AFAB, assigned female at birth people and women in general mm-hmm. uh, to conform to this standard that is, you know, really based in white supremacy. Like there's clearly a connection between what this ideal body has looked like for so long. And Mm. it's not been anything but really a white ideal. Um, But, you know, that's what you see growing up and that's what you aspire to. And so, Somehow I uh, really did not get sucked into that very well. I don't know. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack there with gender feelings and growing being queer and all of that. But uh, I never felt like I had to look exactly like any of those women who existed. Um, did not feel like I needed or wanted to look like a Victoria's Secret model, but I did feel like, oh, I wish my pants fit better. Hmm. Uh, which, I also hate shopping, so there's <laughs> reasons for me to be like, oh, I just want to lose this belly fat that is bothering me. And um, the focus from trying to basically beat my body into submission to attain that which is what I would do with running or when I was really into like hit or high interval, high intensity training. Um, 
which also a great workout, a great supplement to what I do now, but it is not something that I'm like, yes, I get mm-hmm. to this today. It's something that I'm like, all right, this is good for me. I guess I'll do it. And um, that felt a lot more like trying to beat my body into this place where you know, my pants would fit the way I wanted and I didn't have to worry about it. Whereas powerlifting, this focus became on, like Kenzo was saying, what my body can do. Is my body, uh, how is my body reacting to these other changes I'm making in my life, whether it's diet or stress or sleeping more, sleeping less, and how uh, my lifts reflect those changes. Because I know when I am not eating my best diet, so not eating protein and vegetables and carbs, also, like, I know when I'm not eating those things, when I'm not eating enough of those things, which was a huge, was a huge change in mentality for me, was mm-hmm. that to eat enough, or my body and my strength would uh, suffer, really, um, and getting into that mindset rather than, and working with my body instead of trying to trick my body, basically, into mm-hmm doing this thing I wanted so I didn't have to go buy new pants which like really is not that big of a motivation when there's thousands of places that sell stretchy pants now it's <laughs> stretchy pants it's fine um so finding powerlifting in a way that like I'm like oh I'm doing better I can tell that based on my lifts based on how they feel and both based both on how they feel and how the numbers are progressing which is not always linear but you know Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks, you can tell a trend is forming. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. Another thing about the diet is that you know I find myself, you know, especially approaching like a meat day. I'm eating healthier, not because I'm trying to attain a certain body, but because I know exactly which foods are going to fuel my body the way I need it to fuel to be fueled. So then I will, you know, pay attention to protein and things like that, and you know, eat carbs at the right times a day and things like that. Um, so part of it is like, it does force you to listen to your body more and not listen to, you know, artificial crap out there that, you know, your body tells you like, oh, you're, you're, um, going to be bench pressing, you know, X amount of weight. Um, you're going to need this amount of protein. You're going to need these carbs and yes, you're going to need fat. Um, and it's, I almost feel like it's almost rerouting the way I view diet completely because it's just, you know, in, in, the, uh, the, the the superstructure out there of, of dieting, you know, it's always eliminate one thing. It's always yeah. like, oh, be keto, eliminate carbs. Or, you know, when I was growing up, it was eliminate fat. You know, um, fat was supposed to be the big culprit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it doesn't, um, you know, our bodies reject that, I feel. Um, and especially for me and... I just don't feel like I, I want to constantly be thinking about what am I not allowed to eat. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like a prison in some ways when you have these mm-hmm. real restrictive diets. And then on top of that, kind of like what Alyssa said about beating your body into submission. There's something about that that just feels unnatural and you're kind of going against mm-hmm. the grain in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. I can tell you in my own personal journey, I used to be wayfishly thin from like age 10 to about 30. Yeah. 
And then what happened was, okay, got a little stressed. I moved a bit. I put on like 20 pounds. I'm like, all right, cool. Maybe I'll do this CrossFit thing. That's what everybody tells me. Mm. I got the worst advice from my trainer as far as mm. diet. Because he's like, you don't eat enough. You have to just eat, eat, eat. It doesn't matter. You just fucking eat. Yeah. Yeah. He was a bro, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then I got with this other trainer, and I jumped from, like, 240, which is, you know, a little still lean, but kind of got a little pudgy around my stomach, to 275. <laughs> and um, then on top of that, because CrossFit, you only move in one plane, like, my body mm-hmm. started losing mobility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it even affected how I... Oh, I had sex, guys. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and... Gotta pump the brakes on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and by then, the damage was done, you know? My stroke game was never the same. Uh, <laughs> but um, eventually, you know, I've been doing the running thing. That sucked. All the <laughs> other stuff. Mm-hmm. only thing that seemed to be kind of working for me is Brazilian jiu-jitsu because, A, I get to beat someone's ass. <laughs> and... You're moving kind of like translaterally a lot, you know, which is something that I missed from all of that. So by me telling you that and pivot away from all that shit, what were some of the long-term benefits of powerlifting? And then what are some injuries that you can't, that can happen and needed to be avoided if you know how to avoid them? Well, I'd say like the best advice I could give anyone who want, does not want to be injured is to hire a coach that you work with uh, one-on-one at least uh, occasionally to have them check the form and all of your lifts, maybe even look at video you do. I, I understand also that's really expensive. Um, the next, I think the next best is probably is at least having a coach who can watch your video um, or having a training partner who's just really – you know, a lot more experienced than you, that they can watch you and, and give you tips and guidance. Um, being part of a, a strength-specific gym is important too because, like, at Rockwell, I might not be working with my coach, Matt, but um, I can ask anyone in the room, in the space there, like, for help, and people are more than willing to give advice. Um, if you go to a commercial gym, I would say almost go, go in there with blinders because you're going to see some of the worst form you've ever seen, and that's – one way ticket, one way ticket to the chiropractor. Yeah, for sure. I um, when I started lifting, I didn't have a coach, and I was going very slowly because I mm. didn't want to get injured. Because everyone likes to tell you that if you deadlift wrong or you squat wrong, you're going to ruin your knees, ruin your mm-hmm. back, will be broken for life, and all of these <laughs> very dramatic stories, which, of course, you know, people do get injured often because they're doing something foolish, less often because they're doing something properly and there was a freak accident. It's usually mm-hmm. because someone's form is off or they're putting their ego ahead of their body. Uh, and so I progressed very slowly and at some I, when I hit like a hundred and eighty pound deadlift, which was more than my body weight, so I was a little bit stressed about that. <laughs> um, 
I was like, okay, I need to find a coach just to make mm-hmm. sure that I don't hurt myself. And that was absolutely the best. I think it was $150 for three sessions. It was the best $150 I have spent on any hobby probably <laughs> ever um, because it made me feel more confident because there were tweaks that she made to my form, but it was really to make it more efficient, not because it was unsafe, which is something that I had been worried about. And, you know, efficiency is great because you can move more weight with less effort, which is, I often say powerlifting is like the lazy person sport because, (laughs) which everyone's like, what, you're lifting so much weight? Yeah, but you're lifting that weight like maybe five times and then you're taking a break for two minutes. (laughs) The best. Uh Uh-huh tweet you can whatever you can play whatever on your phone it's like nobody cares um because you just like lifted all these things three times and now you have to sit down for (laughs) a while um but yeah the the coaching was really important um and you know there are plenty of uh coaches who will work with you either to like i would strongly advise trying to avoid the ones at like LA fitness and those mm-hmm. kind. they're very cause, because of how like they're probably fine they might be fine but a lot of those places like really want to try to sell you on stuff and that makes it hard to get really good to get really good advice I think mm-hmm. um so I just kind of stalked Instagram for a while because <laughs> I also knew I wanted a woman, I wanted a female coach because I was afraid of growy men and, you know, men in general. It's mm-hmm. just weird. They can be very aggressive. They can be, especially the weightlifting kind can be, I mean, and all men, of course, not all men, no. <laughs> All men can be intimidating when you don't know them. And so Uh I felt like, you know, it was best for me to try to find a female coach. And I really just stalked Instagram a while. I found, like, a gym that was 35 minutes from my house, but it was the only dedicated powerlifting gym in the area. And I just kind of watched their Instagram feed for a couple months. And then there was this woman who kept doing these videos, and she seemed to, like, be knowledgeable and have – um, a bunch of women who she trained and I was like, Oh, okay. So I am going to drive 35 minutes away just to mm-hmm. meet this woman. And it was really great. And I highly recommend trying to find a coach. Yeah, it was very similar for me. My first coach, uh, Jessica was, she, she like, you know, we had one session where she just like, okay, I want to watch how you lift. And she looked at all my lifts and she says, your form is awful. And mm-hmm. She hurt my ego, which was great because I'd rather hurt my ego than my spine. Yep. Um, and she said, okay, cut all your weight in half mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to work on your form. Um, and then like I was only deadlifting off of blocks, which is like a, you know, an easier way of doing a deadlift um, until she said I was ready then to um, pick it up off the floor. And um, it was definitely – the smartest thing uh, I could have done because at the rate I was going, I, I was happy with my progress, but I was actually not performing the lifts correctly. Like I, I my deadlift looked almost like a, a version of a squat, but the bar was on the ground. Like, um, and part of the problem at that time also is that I, um, the job I had at that time uh, required me to sit for anywhere between 
six to 14 hours um, in a day. And uh, my coach was like, that's screwing up your posture. It's making it's screwing up your mobility. So we did a ton of mobility work at first too. Like I'd say half of our sessions um, for the first couple of months, me just doing mobility and her training me on how to do it on my own. So I have, um, you know, I, I regularly foam roll at home and I have the um, lacrosse ball and I roll on that. And just because I know like, you know, I just don't want anything to snap. Like, you know, knock on wood, I haven't been injured since I started powerlifting. Like, every once in a while, I'll tweak something, and I'll just take it easy for a couple of days, but nothing serious. Yeah, I haven't injured myself from lifting. I did, this week, mildly sprain my ankle just being in the gym and walking, and I stepped on one of the machines, had a plate on the bottom, and I just put my foot on it wrong, and it turned. But I have not actually injured myself from exercising it's just from like regular being a person thing. yeah do you find too like you know as a power lifter if I, when i do get injured people always like oh did that happen at the gym and then it's like no i tied my shoe and sneezed at the same time right like that like it's always something really really goofy and you're like listen no my exercise is fine i just <laughs> be a human being <laughs> yeah, I'm like much more graceful in the gym than I am anywhere else. All right, all right, all right. That's enough of that interview, but we'll have more later in the week. Up next, Carl Williams, District Attorneys. Let's learn more. All right, so we are fortunate to have Carl Williams, uh, attorney and teacher at uh, Cornell University, back on the show, which is awesome. How are you doing, Carl? Great, thanks. So, this is a question that I need a little bit more enlightenment on, and I imagine some of our listeners would appreciate this as well, which is, now that it's election season, we always hear, okay, you can vote for your district attorney. Your district attorney. Your district attorney is the top prosecutor or whatever. What does that mean to regular folks? What is the district attorney? Um, so a district attorney is, and they sometimes go by different names, sometimes county attorneys in places, but a district attorney is a localized elected official who is, um, the person who is in charge of, of uh, generally an office of other attorneys, assistant district attorneys or deputy district attorneys, um, who prosecute cases. So when, you know, when you see in Massachusetts, when it's like the Commonwealth versus Carl Williams, or in New York, it's state versus, you know, Jose Lopez. Um, they're the state. They're the ones on that other side of the V charging you with disorderly conduct or homicide, right? They're the, they're the lawyers for um, the state in that county um, that will prosecute the case, right? And in that, they have a tendency to, to work I mean, tendency, it's, it's in, in probably every county in this country to work very, very closely with the cops and to have a very cop mentality. So when people feel that I'm, I'm making quotey marks, but progressive DAs are going to save us, I, I just sighed kind of because <laughs> that, that's I think it's an unfortunate belief. It's having a DA that's not, you know, blood and guts and like trying to get every maximum, you know, having someone that's not the attitude of 
uh, Jeff Sessions mm. is 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 helpful, right? But but it's in a way I, I'm going to give a harsh analogy. So anyone who went to school with me who's a prosecutor, you know, now deal with it, <laughs> or anyone that I know. So just deal with it. It's like if you were in Guantanamo Bay and someone, you know, some horrible, sadistic, you know, racist is coming in to torture you every day. And someone says, would you like to vote for a progressive torturer? You might say, well, yeah, I would like someone who isn't a sadistic, racist lunatic. But you don't think that that's going to be <laughs> the systemic change that you want, right? Hmm. So that's how I feel about DA's. DA's job, end of the day, in the United States of America, criminal legal system. If you operate in the criminal legal system as it exists today in the United States, your job is to put black, poor, brown, immigrant people in prison. That is your job. That's what you do. That's what the criminal laws in this country were created to do. It's what they do do incredibly well, right, by, by the numbers of millions. And we need systemic change on that. However, in the short run, you know, when we're, we're rowing the boat to the shore of systemic change, one of the things is we need to bail the water out because our people are dying, being literally being executed, being put in prison for their whole lives, being put in prison for decades and then deported and then getting killed when they go back to their home countries because of political situations the United States created. But so if given the choice between a quote unquote progressive DA and a not a progressive DA, I'll take the progressive DA every day. But I actually, in fact, don't believe it is possible to be progressive and a DA. Just it is not possible to be progressive and a cop. Well, gee, Carl, um, that all sounds pretty awful with the DAs. But why do people have, why do they have this idea that a DA could possibly save us or they're good? Because... Because some of them are people who care, who care and, and, and come from those movements. You know, right now, uh, Larry Krasner in, in, in Philadelphia, um, the new elected district attorney, and or but she's not elected, but she, she won the Democratic primary, the likely person to be, uh, to be the district attorney next year in the county that Boston, Massachusetts is in, and a number of other places around the country. Because the other people were so damn bad. The other people were so damn bad. Right. Um, it, it, it's, you know, to have someone who is, you know, a little bit more leaning uh, to the progressive side or leaning quite to the progressive side. But how do we get the problem is how do we get systemic change from inside the system? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Sister Audrey Lord said um, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And I'm going to just paraphrase and say, you know, the the laws of white supremacy can never dismantle the laws of white supremacy, right? That, 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 you can't do that. They were made to do a certain thing, right? So we need uh, an outside game outside of that system to change that structure. And I think that's happening. We also need, in the short run, we need to do some bailing out, right? Hmm. Like I, I was saying bailing out of the boat, but some actual bailing out of people, but we need, and for that, is it, is it in the short run, having progressive DAs, is that incredibly important? Sure is. 
Go vote. Go vote for the most person who believes that cash bail is bullshit. Go vote for the person who's going to get rid of mandatory minimums. Go vote for the person that isn't putting our sisters and brothers sometimes and people of other genders in jail for um, that do sex work like that, that want to decriminalize that, that want to make that, that that legal, that think, you know, the marijuana laws and all the rest of the drug laws are bullshit. If there's a person who believes that some of those things are all those things, vote for that person in your in your county um, and organize. And when they get elected, push them harder, push them further. OK, so. All right. In the meantime, get the best person for the job that has our interests or at least act to have our interests in mind. It's closer to our interests. Yeah, closer to our interests. So what? let's imagine, because I always like to think of what is an alternative? What is something that we could um, aspire to? What would that aspect of the criminal justice system with dealing with DAs, if we can reform or get rid of them, how would that look? I mean, if you imagine, you know, a, a, a DA system in, you know, Boston, Milwaukee are, are I think they're the, they're right next to each other in the size of cities, so they're very, very similar in size. But if you take these cities, these district attorneys' offices have like sometimes scores, if not like low level, of hundreds of of people working in them. Right? What would happen if we had a bunch of social workers? Right? If we had a bunch of um, you know detox programs? Right? Instead of prison cells? Right? If you sit, go into a county municipal court, trial court in any place in the United States. You see people in there, they're in there for driving on a suspended license for, you know, misdemeanor possession of heroin, sometimes felony possession of heroin and or of marijuana or, you know, minor crimes that are nonviolent crimes that I personally think there's no reason someone should be arrested for those crimes. No reason. And they also indicate problems that exist in our society, right, that are better dealt with with other systems. So these DA offices in many cases, you know, every case, I don't want to say many cases, in every case are sucking up resources that could address the health of our people, right? I'll say this, get the personal one. My mother was addicted to heroin, right? When I was, when my brother and I were born, I don't think I've ever said that publicly on the radio, was addicted to heroin. You know, God bless her. She's a wonderful person. She struggled with a disease, right? Society did not address that disease. And it's my belief that she died because very, very young and when I was very, very young because of that disease. And I'll get profane in this. I fucking want there to be very, very good mental health facilities that people can access in our communities, uh, drug treatment facilities that people can access in our communities and ways that people can address their addictions that don't involve putting someone in a goddamn prison cell. Right. Which is much worse. And news for every district attorney in this country and every judge in this country, you can get heroin or fentanyl or whatever drug you're addicted to in prison. It's not hard. Right. You just mm -hmm. usually have to do very bad things to get it. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, um, because it is a lot of people have been touched by, you know, drug abuse and um, just the incarceral state. And DAs in the media are always portrayed as like these smart, awesome folks that get down to the bottom of a crime. And if there's nothing there, they will just leave it, leave it be. But realistically, they want to get more tallies on their on their windsheet. Yeah. 
And um, just being honest about that system and our individual stories with that system, I think is um, really important. And I really appreciate you uh, laying that out there and just explaining to people, this is the real deal. Yeah. I I mean, we have, you know, prisons and jail cells full of people who some have committed violent crimes and many of whom have committed nonviolent crimes and who are dealing with what should be treated as public health problems, right? Mm-hmm. If we dealt with addiction the way, because if you're well, and, and this is, you know, we could talk about abolition. That's a long conversation. The idea of abolishing police and, and, and prisons, which sounds wild. When you say that, it sounds, Oh my God, how could we do that? We already, for the most part, have that. If you're rich and you're white and you're addicted to drugs and you committed some weak crime related to that or you possess drugs and you were in your boarding school, you don't go to jail. The vast majority of the time, you do not go to jail. You do not go to prison. You, Someone sends you to the Betty Ford. It's Betty Ford Clinic still a thing. Yeah, they send you true. to the, a fancy clinic or a spa and they take you away and they treat your addiction and you know you relapse and then they treat your addiction again and then you relapse and they treat your addiction again and you kick it and you live a normal productive healthy life that contributes as well if you're rich maybe not maybe you sort of leech off society but but um um you, you they you're treated as a human being right not a number not a body right you're treated as a human being and i want that system for the rest of us yeah I think so. Well, I think all of us are in agreement on that one. Carl, thank you for your time. Sure, thank you so much. All right, so we made it to the end of another episode. I would like to thank you guys for spending time with us. Please follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color and support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash movement of color. My name is Brandon Payton Carrillo, and I'm here. Of color.